1: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to help you make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Say goodbye to the age of disruption. For ages, startups funded by cheap venture capital money would come into a given industry and run circles around the existing players. But now that spigot has dried up. So the incumbents are winning, and that means their earnings could be better than anyone thinks. I think the lack of competition for these incumbents has been fueling a lot of the market's recent strength, especially in the NASDAQ. Even today, it finished pretty flat. Dow advancing 101 points has to be gaining 0.01%, and the actually edging down 003 But today was a bit of a roller coaster. As I watched the rebound from the bottom earlier in the session, it was once again kicked off by tech in a rally that began with semiconductor company Micron and then broadened out to include pretty much every semi play, even as they had nothing to do with Micron. Hell, OK, look, it makes some sense. We haven't had a single new issuance in the semi in world ages. When you don't have any new IPOs, you don't have any new competition of any meaningful size. And without competition, the incumbents always win. Although the idea that the semiconductor capital equipment stocks could rally on an assured decline of orders from Samsung was quizzical and will most likely be repealed when the buyers come to their senses. You know we've had practically no IPOs for ages. It's a truly seminal drought not talked about enough, something that was probably exacerbated by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which often did business with startups and was very successful at it until its deposit base fled en masse. The vanishing of the new issue market means two things two things that are very positive for the stock market itself. First, the existing companies that are entrenched will no longer be challenged by smart, nimble new players because those new players are running out of cash and can't raise money easily because of the stock market. It's just not funding anything. We know this because part of the run on Silicon Valley Bank came from executives who were in a panic and borrowed against the shares of their not yet publicly traded startups. That's not normal, and it helps sink SVB just as it could sink First Republic. We got some disturbing comp- compilations from Michael Semblis, one of my favorite strategists, in his Eye on the Market report from J.P. Morgan, pointing out that the f- impact of First Republic's unrealized securities and loan losses on its capital are so much worse than every other bank out there. So you could tell it was likely making those same risky loans against so-called pre-IPO stock, although this, uh, First Republic did have a nice little rally to the close. Live the play again? How about the second positive for the pros and IPO market? Just as it means there's no new competition for existing companies, it also means there's no new competition for your dollars, right? No new competition to their stocks, as investors usually cash in stock from incumbents to buy hot new issues. That's vital for the overall trajectory of the market. Money markets rates as excellent competition right now. And they and the new IPOs would take a lot of money away from the incumbents. But that is not happening. The incumbents are keeping the money. What's the longer-term impact of the first point, the lack of competition for the incumbents? Well, let's just look at a couple, okay? Let's look at a bunch of industries. The first is fast food. McDonald's hit a new high today. It did so in part because of layoffs. If you lay off people in a pretty much any industry these days and your sales are good, you're going to see your stock go higher. McDonald's is the ultimate example of the incumbent winning. See, ordinarily you expect a bunch of new fast food uh, chains to come public when McDonald's is doing so well, which would compete against the Golden Arches. But consider the curious case of Sweet Green, a restaurant that could have been a contender if the market hadn't shut off its funding. This was a $5.7 billion company at one time and still a $3.1 billion company at this time last year. Uh, But the time it should have been using to sell more stock is over. Unfortunately, it did so. It didn't. It, It stumbled. So now the company's only worth $1 billion. That's very good news for every other incumbent fast food company in the industry, including McDonald's, gives them more breathing room. Maybe the precedent set by Sweetgreen wrecked things for a dozen other new restaurant chains that might have been waiting in the wings to go public. They became persona non grata because of Sweetgreen and all the money it lost you. Long live the incumbents. How about the drug business? When things were booming in the IPO market, we had a constant stream of poorly funded pipe dream companies that needed cash to prove that they could get their dreams to the finish line often in biotech. We had lots of others that never made it to the IPO market. Talk about the power of the incumbents. Now, late last month, we interviewed Emma Walmsley. She's the CEO of GSK, who became really very, very adept at picking off early-stage drug companies with good pipelines that can no longer raise money in this environment. So she's getting them on the cheap. Now, there are tons of companies that don't even have the money to make it to the IPO window these days. They can either come to the market at a discount to the last sale of money they raised privately ugly, or they can sell themselves to one of the major players that's hungry for growth. It doesn't need an IPO market to make a choice like GSK. By the way, look at the Merck. Look at the, all the bo- the buys that Merck has just done. You don't hear about them, but they're all from these companies that I think would have come public. That's a bonanza for the incumbents. We see this phenomenon in a host of industries. You know the investment bankers are sitting on a bunch of privately held artificial intelligence players, right? I mean, wouldn't that be natural, given all the money that wants to be an AI? We'd be swimming in those stupid deals. Said nobody wants to come public right now because the IPO market's dead. But without them, that money all flows to, yes, Kramer fave NVIDIA. And Nvidia only. Isn't it remarkable how there could be just one company that people identify as an artificial intelligence play? In any other environment, we'd be dealing with a dozen smaller AI companies that the brokers had pumped out for us, sopping on more than 100 billion in capital minimum. But they aren't coming public anytime soon. Long live Nvidia! So now let's go to the real incumbents, the biggest potential winners here. Why don't we start with Amazon? Without a doubt, there'd be a host of, of imitators, a host of companies besides DoorDash. that would compete with them, especially in local delivery. Maybe there could have been a competitor two or three or four, but who would ever go against Amazon in a world where it's so hard to get funding? You'd be ridiculed. Without that sweet venture capital money coming in, nobody wants to take the risk. Amazon could close some money-losing divisions, fire a bunch of people, and see its stock go to 150 the next day. No, the rest of businesses are unassailable. They're not taking advantage of it. I may have to knock their heads together. How about Alphabet? Here's a company that has so many different divisions and missions, all of which I'm sure have real merit. The fact is, though, they, that you never want to compete against Alphabet because even when it's doing something that has no self-evident utility, you can bet that any venture capitalist worth their salt hasn't been able to get something similar off the ground because the company's too fierce. You can't go against Alphabet. Only the Justice Department could lay a glove on these guys. Finally, there's the ultimate in incumbency, meta-platforms. Right now, Meta's busy being efficient, but it's also busy keeping out people out of the metaverse. While it plums the deaths of TikTok with its homemade reels knockoff, off, while blocking a rival new phone company with its WhatsApp offering, they keep anybody new out of social media because they're already so dominant. Of all the companies that could have been derailed by a healthy IPO market, I think it would have been the worst for Meta. Instead, you can tell that other than the Chinese offering of TikTok, there's no real competition coming from anywhere, especially now. Snap is folding. I bet there are a dozen companies that would like to go public in social media because it's still got all the money coming in its way, but they're all still born because of the power of Meta. One of the wonderful things about being an incumbent is that you can throw up the white flag for one of your divisions and just start firing people like mad. The crazy rally for meta shares, which is not done, comes directly from the fact that they can fire nearly a quarter of their workforce and they got nothing to worry about because nobody can jump the moat of Meta. The incumbency powers of Amazon, Alphabet, they haven't even been tested yet. When they are, all I can say is these will be the most dangerous shorts of our era. Something that goes for the bulk of the NASDAQ 100. You heard it from me. That is the most dangerous short in the market. Bottom line, when there's no new competitors, no new stock and no new money, to the incumbent goes the spoils. Manuel in Illinois. Manuel. Yes, Jim. Thank you for taking my call and everything you do for the uh, home gamers like myself. My question thank is you. on Tesla. I just wanted your thoughts into earnings with the several price cuts and, you know, it's going to deplete the margins. Just wanted your thoughts. into Well, I, I, earnings. Look, it's a great question. Here's the way I look at it. Elon Musk is smarter than all of us. Why would he cut price if he doesn't think it can make it up in volume in a way that will really be advantageous? I am not going up against Elon Musk. He has confounded his enemies too often. I can't say this man doesn't know what he's doing. Trey in Texas. Trey. <inaudible> Trey's breaking up a little there. We got a little breakup problem. In late 2021, and all she okay. asked was that to put her money exclusively in stable equities. I went all in on Palantir at 24 a share, and well, you know the hell of well that's worked out thus far. So I've got my work cut out for me, but I'm determined to revive her account and win back my father-in-law's respect. And I wanted to all see right. if you think Ally Financial could be the missing ingredient. Ally? Well do you want to get divorced? I mean, what the hell? I mean, life's tough enough. I mean, you know, can you imagine it, it it's sitting around there? like a like a, for a Memorial Day uh, a barbecue? Hey, why did not you bury me in Allied Financial? Hey, you know what? Why don't you just spy Alec Financial and send me an invitation to your funeral? All right. When there's no new... Nice guy. I just... you know, When, when there's no new competitors, no new stock and no new money, to the incumbent goes the spoils. Learn that term because we are about to see a triumph of incumbency the likes of which you've never seen. made buddy, tonight, last Friday, we got the non-farm payroll report on a day where the market was closed. So now we're able to react to the numbers. And I'm breaking everything down. as quite different from what you've heard. Then sometimes it's important to ask yourself, am I being too negative? And it's not about Ally, by the way, just so we get that straight. I got a bunch of stocks that I think have been overtaken by negativity. And you're going to hear about them all week. And fresh off the Masters, is it time to buy a golfing powerhouse like Top Golf Callaway? I'm taking a closer look at the story. So stay with Kramer. Don't
0: miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag MadTweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at one 800 743 cnbc Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com/metaverseimpact.
1: On Friday, we got the Labor Department's all-important non-farm payroll report, but because the markets was closed. We couldn't react to those numbers today. I think they deserve a closer look because employment holds the key to the Federal Reserve's next move. I've been saying that over and over again. When you only look at the headline number, it was slightly better than expected with 236,000 net new jobs created in March. But that's a big step down from the 326,000 new jobs created in February. In fact, this was the weakest job creation's been since December of 2020. Of course, what we're worried about is wage inflation, because the Fed won't stop tightening until they cool down the labor market. And on that front, we got some encouraging news, too. First, the labor force participation rate ticked up to 62.6. That's its highest level since March of 2020, when COVID first transformed the economy. In other words, people are finally returned to the workforce after millions dropped out during the pandemic. Second, from the Fed's perspective, the most important data point here is the average hourly earnings line. Because that's how you measure wage inflation. Talked about that this morning on Squawk on the Street. An average hourly earnings were up only 4.2% year-over-year, weaker than expected, and a significant deceleration from the 4.6% increase in February. Lowest number in nearly two years. Wage inflation has been falling slowly but steadily since March of last year, although it needs to keep coming down if we want the Fed to back off. And this isn't a number that'll make the Fed back off. But when you drill down into numbers, the leisure and hospitality industry created the most jobs with government employment in second, followed by professional and business services and healthcare. So what does all this mean for Jay Powell and his posse at the Federal Reserve? Remember where we are coming from. At the very beginning of the year, we got some cooler economic data, which led many investors to bet the Fed would soon declare victory. That was a big mistake. Those people got it wrong. I was part of that. I thought that it would happen. It didn't. Then in February, we got hotter numbers, and it became clear the Fed would have, to, would have to keep bringing the pain. That's certainly the tone Powell struck when he spoke to Congress a little over a month ago. Of course, within hours of Powell wrapping up his testimony, the House Financial Service Committee, we got a run on a major bank, Silicon Valley Bank, that wrecked the entire institution with with another near-to-well bank failing within days. Wiped out the common stock, zero. Now, I've been adamant that this mini-banking crisis is worth 100 basis points of rate hikes, simply because the regional banks will lend a lot less aggressively now that they're in retrenchment mode. In fact, we're already starting to see that. We have tangible evidence of it. According to new data released by the Federal Reserve on Friday evening, Okay, evening. Remember, the market's closed. Commercial bank lending declined by an astounding $105 billion in the two-week period since March 29th. Do you know that's the biggest decline on record since the Fed started tracking this data 60 years ago? In any case, when the Fed tightened again on March 22nd, they only raised interest rates by 25 base points rather than hitting us with the 50-point double rate hike many expected before the Silicon Valley bank collapse. But that number is staggering. It took my breath away to see that little lending happening. However, j doesn't seem to agree with my overall view. When he spoke on March 22nd, he said it's too soon to tell what impact the banking crisis will have on the economy and made it clear that the fight against inflation is far from over. Of course, Wall Street doesn't believe it. When you look at the Fed Fund's futures market where investors bet on Fed's interest rate trajectory, the futures are trading like Powell will be cutting by the end of the year. (laughs) I'm not buying that at all. Powell wrote that off as ridiculous at the last press conference. He's a man of his word. I'm also highly skeptical. I don't see rate cuts by the end of the year. Not at all, let alone this summer. That's wrong, too. It's quite a few investors seem to expect that. I think they'll be disappointed. But I do think we're approaching the end of this tightening cycle, and that's what matters to me. Maybe we get one more 25 basis point rate hike in May. I think that'd be wrong. Don't need it. But they could follow it by a pause as the Fed lets things out. They don't want to cause a depression or a recession. They don't want to be the reason. Remember, even if Powell does nothing, the banking crisis means there'll be less lending, which is the whole point of raising interest rates. But while I think that that's where we're headed, we still need to get power on board. That's the important context for every major piece of macro data uh, we're going to get this month. The Fed still needs to be convinced that the economy is experiencing a meaningful slowdown and inflation is cooling off. They're not convinced yet. Now, when you look at all the macro data we got last week, I think it's easy to make the, make the argument, though. Last Monday, we got a cooler manufacturing PMI number. And a much cooler ISM manufacturing meeting, one that showed a real downturn in manufacturing activity. That ISM report also showed a nice decline in prices paid, along with some surprise softness in construction. On Tuesday, we got substantially weaker than expected job openings, a larger than anticipated decline in factory orders, and a 1% decline in durable goods orders. That's a decline. Even the U.S. services PMI came in below expectations on Wednesday, and services is supposed to be the strongest part of our economy, right? Travel, leisure? Thursday brought us rising jobless claims. Friday. Yeah. OK, we got this March non-farm report. And while the headline number was stronger than expected, when taken as a whole, I think it reflects a cooler economy, not a real cool economy, but a cooler. Remember, we added the fewest new jobs since December 2020. Wage growth was its slowest level in nearly two years. Even if the economy isn't being put through the meat grinder, it is definitely slowing down. But we're not getting deflation yet. We're just getting a slowdown in the game. Of course, the Fed doesn't want to stop until they see more proof that inflation is actually going down. We're definitely not there yet. But last Friday's jobs report was certainly in the right direction. It was a step. I think these numbers make it more likely that Powell gives us one more quarter point. A hike next month, and then puts the whole enterprise on pause to see what happens next. I don't think we really even need the quarter but that's what I think is going to happen. Well, I really don't think we will see rate cuts at any point this year. This labor report does make that more likely, though we need to see a lot more economic weakness before that's in the realm of possibility. Please take that off the table. I honestly don't want to see rate cuts by the end of the year because it would mean that businesses deteriorate dramatically. No earnings would be met. All the estimates have to be cut. I'd rather have a much more gentle soft landing, which is still very much on the table if the Fed plays Cards right. The bottom line of this very tricky situation and uh, a uh, uh, really a segment that I would have done on Friday if the market weren't closed. The March employment report, on top of all the other cooler economic data we got last week, should give j cover to end his reign of rate hikes sometime soon, which would be extremely bullish for the stock market. But none of this matters unless the softer numbers continue. The next big test, Wednesday, the CPI reading. And then we'll mercifully get to hear how companies are doing once earnings season kicks off on Friday, at which point we can spend less time speculating about the macro and more time talking about what companies are really doing, which, you know, is the essence of Bad Money and my charitable trust. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up,
0: has too low tides sunk these ships to unfair depths? Kramer looks at five stocks that may be undervalued. Next.
1: too negative? That's the question you need to ask yourself every day these days in this business because I'm beginning to think that we're all too negative. So what am I going to do about it this week as we head into earnings season? I'm going to highlight the stocks that seem undervalued considering where we are right now versus a couple of years ago. Of course, we're still hostage to the macro. There's more energy expended on the tens and twos, the shape of the yield curve, than there is on any individual company. And you own companies, not the yield curve. The obsession with the bond market feels like an infection that obscures what's really going on underneath. It's keeping you in your chains. I'm busting the chains. When is it the s 500 is at this very moment pretty much unchanged from two years ago? I want you to forget for a moment about a potential recession or the possibility that earnings season could be brutal. It definitely could be, not denying it. Instead, I need to remember that companies can change their stripes, especially over just when we look at the next what's happened in the last two years. And that means their stocks might be undervalued here because there's a good chance barely anyone bothered to notice how these companies have done so much right in the last few years. Many money managers are solely focused on the macro because the individual stocks are just too small for them. Of course, as a stock picker, as someone here, that's what we do at Mad, right, who tries to teach you how to build a portfolio right? That's what the club's about. I hate the top-down approach that only focuses on the big picture, ignoring the trees for the forest. Oh, risk on, risk off. There's a term you understand, right? That's really helpful for you. It makes sense to only consider the macro when you're running a massive hedge fund, so massive that individual stock picking is pointless because stocks are too small to move the needle for them, not for you. They can only trade baskets of stocks, which is why they're so focused on the S&P, the NASDAQ, or various sector ETFs. But very few people run gigantic hedge funds. Do you? I don't. Their financial priorities should not be your financial priorities. As a matter of fact, they'll probably mislead you. I won't. So let me start with a simple precept. Individual stocks have done amazing things, yet they're systematically ignored by money managers, commentators, traders, and media whose job it should be to make money for you, but instead they're making every mo- money every day for their customers, and you're not one of them. I think that's a, that's a, a mistake for you, even though it's, nece- it's a necessity for them. They don't have a choice. That's their business. My business is to help you. So let's do this. We've studied an immense number of companies here, and our info is fresh and strong. I don't want to go all obscure. So as we head into earnings season, why don't we just do this to start the series? Why don't we start with five well-known members of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, selected more or less at random, frankly, strictly to demonstrate that you might be able to find, you no, know, that you could throw darts at a group of companies like the Dow 30 and come up with undervalued stocks that we are way too negative about. We're going to do another five tomorrow. Because my survey of all 30 Dow components reveals that only three companies in the index are actually worth less than they were two years ago. And that's Intel, Verizon, and 3M. The first two because they've fallen behind the competitors. And the last one because of bewildering legal issues. I see 27 other companies that I think are much better off or better off than they were two years ago, and yet their stocks are doing nothing. That is wrong. Let's start with Microsoft. Now, here's a stock that's gone from 255 to 288 in the last two years. Pit stop at just under 350 near the end of 2021. Two years ago, Microsoft's fastest growing business. Listen to these numbers. This is great. Two years ago, its business uh, Azure for the cloud. It had 60 billion in revenue. This year, it's expected to have 87 billion. <laughs> Microsoft's personal computer business went from $54 billion to $59 billion last year. Now, that's expected to pull back to about $53 billion this year. Hey, so-called a billion-dollar decline for that business. But compare that to the 37% decline in overall P-C sales that we saw today. The business software's division, which nobody even knows what's in there. But I can tell you this, it, it, it it grew from $54 billion to an expected $68 billion this year. Totally unhurled. But most of all, and why this is a different, much better company than two years ago, and yet its stock's doing nothing, I care about Microsoft's wholehearted embrace of artificial intelligence. Yet Microsoft embraced open AI with a commitment of at least $10 billion. There are so many ways to go with this, including a resurrection of BING! their stillborn search business! The idea that Microsoft's market capitalization, after what I just described to you, has only gone from $1.9 trillion to $2.1 trillion during this period, is insane. You think that's all the value that was added? When you look at it like this, it seems ridiculous that the stock was such a high-quality company that had such a small move higher, unless you feel that Microsoft's simply taking market share away from, say, Amazon in web services, and the AI emphasis won't mean all that much anytime soon. I have to vehemently disagree with that view. Next, let's take Nike. We all know Nike. Okay, we all know Nike. Okay, so Nike shares have fallen from $135 two years ago to just under $122 during the last two years. Two years. Look at that decline, right? Well, I, I think this, look at this. This is where the stock was, and I'm about to tell you why this company is a much better company than where the stock is. See, two years ago, we were worried that China would be Nike's Achilles heel. And we were wondering all about this Jordan franchise, Had it run its course. But when Nike reported its most recent results, it now looks like China's accelerating. And the Jordan franchise is stronger than ever. Never mind that he retired 25 years ago. Probably the most people buying Jordans don't even know who Jordan was. At the same time, Nike's direct consumer business. It's an incredible success. Two years ago, it was very iffy. Now we know it's fantastic. Granted, the earnings are pretty much unchanged, but actually down a bit from two years ago. But that's not what I'm happy about. You see, you got to consider that Nike's franchise is worth more than it was back then. And most importantly, I think the reopening of China will prove to be explosive for their numbers. We're not getting anything about China in here. It's not making sense. Give that outlook. It makes no sense that this stock is down from 10%, down 10%, From two years ago, when China's about to open, and this is the number one way to play that opening? Third randomly selected Dow stock. Let's just talk Boeing for a second. Two years ago, I was worried that Boeing might never be able to make a comeback. It had nothing but trouble with the FAA. The 737 Max seemed disastrous. There was no demand for the most lucrative line of planes. That's the Dreamliner. And it it was hobbled by manufacturing woes. China seemed to have vanished as a customer. And that's what you—all that news is right there, okay? Now with the stock at 211, down from 252 two years ago, every one of those issues is going positive. Every one been resolved positively, and I could argue that Boeing's supply chain situation has only gotten easier. How could the stock be down so much after experiencing such improvement? This is wrong. Okay, sometimes you just have to say you own it. This is wrong. Two years ago, right here, should be a little bubble. Says, "Am I too negative?" Next up, how about Walmart? All right, here's the stock that was $140 two years ago. stands at $150 now, but the stock just ran for $140 to $150 last week because of an analyst spinning. It basically sucks and basically nothing in two years. Nothing. I think there's been a recognition in the last two years that Walmart's 4,700 stores are now an advantage versus Amazon because the last mile transportation is something that's pretty. It's gotten pretty darn expensive for Amazon. They have all these distribution centers called stores. It's great for Walmart. I like the emphasis, by the way, when you go now versus two years ago, the emphasis on fresh and organic. Go to one. You'll see. It's so different from what you thought. I like that they have held the line on price inflation. I like I think that the private label is outstanding and their delivery service superb. Yet its stock has basically done nothing. That makes no sense to me. Finally, let's get gutsy here. Let's pick a stock of a company that we talk about way too often, but I'm going to do it anyway. J.P. Morgan reports Friday even though it's become the dominant bank in the country in two years, even though we're witnessing a deposit run where the spare cash is practically all fleeing to J.P. Morgan, the stock has come down from 156 to 127. Plus, while there might be some net interest margin compression, the lag between what it pays out on its bountiful deposits versus what it gets to keep from its loans or bond investments is remarkable. I think J.P. Morgan may very well report at this point in quarter because of all the many banking crises we have. Depends on the day and the bank that goes under. But if the Fed is getting ready to declare victory in its fight against inflation, this would be the financial to own. Don't you want to do that? It's got a 3% yield, too. I know CEO Jamie Dimon thinks there'll be a race to 6% Fed funds rate. I get that. I'm, but I'm betting that, too, would be an advantage for JP Morgan, and all the stock has done is go down. But let's be clear. The fact that this fortress bank is worth less than two years ago, that, when its superiority is so much more profound right now than it was back then, makes me think that Wall Street's being way too negative into the print. The bottom line, there you go. Five stocks selected from the Dow that the market is doing way, 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 way too negatively. Much more to come in this series. Am I too negative? Because the answer is you are. Brian in Pennsylvania. Brian. Booyah, Mr. Jimmy. Kill, there I go. The guy's God's got game. Monday call, he's got game. I like it. I like it. What's up? Hey, I wanted to get your thoughts on PNC Bank. Turmoil in the banking industry, a lot of the big name regional banks can be bought at a substantial discount, and PNC has a 6% dividend. I took a small position when the stock dropped to 124. My question is, is now the time to add to that position, assuming poor earnings results are already baked into the stock price, or should I proceed with caution until after the next earnings report? Well, I have to tell you, it it's only yields five now. Here's what's happened. The regional banks are now valued the same as the money centers. So it turns out the regional banks were overvalued versus the money centers. I don't see, I see PNC going to 130. I mean, that's, a, that's an eight-point gain. I don't think that's bad. But bet that's a trade. Uh, and I'm not recommending any of the regionals, but I can see that bounce to 130. I need to go to Kate in Georgia. Kate.
0: Hi, Jim. I'm still in the club. I'm still doing great. And I'm just so grateful to you, Jeff, and the team.
1: Oh, thank you. We tried so hard. Oh, my God. My wife wanted to kill me yesterday. I'm sitting there writing that piece she got last night, and she's like, come on. just like, watch Succession. And I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but I'm telling you, I think I made a better move writing. What's up?
0: Well, I've been doing a little bit of initial research, and I've come across a um, Staples company that looks really promising, and I wanted your feedback on it. It's CalMain Foods, ticker C-A-L-M.
1: It's unfortunately... Uh it is so commodity oriented uh, that I'm always afraid to recommend that. And you know, in the club, we're very conservative because we're very worried about your money, and that would be too much of a roller coaster. But thank you for being a member, and thank you for understanding the work that Jeff and I put in. It really matters to us. All right, we have, we have to ask ourselves Am I being too negative? Am I too negative? Because the answer, as I'm going to show all week, is yes, you are too negative. That's where we have money at. Every year after the Masters, we like to reevaluate the golf stock. So tonight's no different. I'm digging into top golf Callaway to see if the stock could be a hole in one for your portfolio. Then, what the heck happened to the semiconductor stocks today? I'm going to give you my take on the major move higher. And Oyder calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. This weekend, golf season got off an unofficial start with the Masters. And as we watched John Rahm's come from behind victory, very exciting on Sunday, it got us thinking about the golf stocks we've highlighted before. Specifically, a year ago, I told you it was time to buy a Cushnet Holdings. That's a parent company of several golf brands like Titleist and Footjoy. While recommending you ditch, sell, sell, sell. Top Golf Callaway brands, which is an agglomeration of golf brands and Top Golf driving range. Why did we do that? Because a Cushnet's a steady Yeti story with a stock that had pulled back substantially from its highs, while Callaway was exactly the kind of richly valued stock that had gone out of style on the Wall Street Fashion Show. They paid a fortune for Top Golf, and while I think that the concept was very exciting, it was just the wrong fit for 2022. Since then, a Cushnet has rallied 23% while Golf Callaway's down nearly 2% over the same period. Right call! But this is a very different market than we had a year ago. I still like Kush Desk, especially with the stock down 8% from its highs just over a month ago. Recent quarter was excellent. Still turned cheap at just uh, over 17 times this year's earnings estimates. However, Top Golf's Callaway is now a lot more exciting. I think it's finally safe to own this one. Buy, buy, buy! which has rebounded hard from its lows last October. This one's always been an interesting story. For years, Callaway brands made mostly golf equipment and apparel, very well run. But then everything changed when they made an investment in Golf, which, which if you haven't been, is basically a high-tech golf and entertainment venue. Tech-enabled driving ranges with bars and food menus. They're a lot of fun, people. And I'm not a golfer, but I just do like these places. Then in late 2020, they decided to buy the whole thing, paying for nearly $2 billion for Topgolf, which was more than Callaway's entire market capitalization at the time. They had to issue roughly 90 million shares to pay for it, massively diluting their earnings power. I didn't like that. At the same time, they had to assume Topgolf's debt, basically doubling their debt load. This was bad. It was expensive. It was expensive. It didn't take long for Wall Street to embrace Topgolf Callaway's faster-growing new form, though. Unfortunately, the market fell out of love with growth stocks about 10 months after the deal closed, with predictable results for the stock. <laughs> of course, nothing's changed the underlying company. Only the Wall Street fashion show has changed. I always try to teach you this, how people look at things, not the thing itself. Callaway never wavered in strategy. In fact, they doubled down with Topgolf business, and now they're growth stories that are no longer totally toxic. I think the stock actually looks pretty attractive. Hey, it doesn't hurt that in early February, Topgolf Cali reported a bang-up fourth quarter. Topgolf's is now the largest part of the business, counting for 39% of last year's sales, and it grew at a remarkable 42% clip. I told you it was fun. Meanwhile, golf equipment was up 14%, and active lifestyle jumped by 27%. Put it all together, and Topgolf had 27.5% revenue growth year over year. 32% on a constant currency basis. Those stocks are hard to find, though, because they have that much growth. They're also making real progress on the profitability front, which you know means so much now. Uh, margin is very much headed in the right direction. EBITDA up 25% year-over-year. More important, management gave us excellent revenue forecasts for both the current quarter and the full year. They're talking about 10 to 12% revenue growth for 2023. It's a huge chunk of that coming from Top Golf, where they see a 23% growth rate. While the profitability forecast was, I would describe, as mixed, I actually think management is practicing what we call paddle, man money. They're under-promising, and they're, they're going to over-deliver. The analysts seem to agree because the full-year estimates are well above what Callaway's is guiding for. I bet the analysts are right. When you look at some of these forecast, management's numbers do seem too conservative. For example, they're talking about flat sales for the golf equipment division, which seems nuts given that Callaway's got a big hit with its paradigm and line of golf clubs. The club's used by yesterday's master champion, John Rahm. If you go with the consensus earnings number here at 80 cents per share, Callaway is now trading at roughly 27 times this year's numbers. All right, that's much cheaper than where it was trading a year ago, and given the terrific growth story they've got with Top Golf, it's actually a reasonable price. But the real reason I want to turn bullish on Top Golf Callaway has nothing to do with the numbers, at least not the earnings numbers. What excites me about this one is that Callaway seems, Callaway seems to be making huge progress on its longer-term goal of growing the game. That's right. On the latest conference call, management made this point right at the top of the prepared remarks. CEO Chip I really like. He laid it all out. Last year, U.S. golf participation grew from 37.5 million to. 41 million people. Boy, that's a very nice increase for a game that's been around for a while. On-course golfing increased by half a million participants. The real strength, though, was in off-course gold Think driving ranges like Top Golf, with total participants up 3.1 million. That's Callaway's business; and it's now bigger than regular golf. So many people want one of these near them right? because you have to drive for miles sometimes to get them. Uh, what Brewer said, I liked. "Quote: We believe the off-course target uh, growth was largely driven by Top Golf." End quote. Sure, sounds like. The these guys own the future of the game. Just from Topgolf's expansion, they expect to add three to four million unique visitors per year going forward. Can't argue with that. At this point, it's clear most of the growth in golf is coming from these off-course locations. And it's supposed to like joining fancy country clubs, right? And nothing else comes close to Topgolf in terms of scale or popularity. Throw in the fact that the market's gotten a lot more comfortable with growth stocks again. they that are at least ex- aspiring profitably, it's hard not to recommend this one. I'm not alone here. This morning, Jeffries published a bullish note on Topgolf Callaway, arguing that it doesn't get enough credit for Topgolf, which is immense scarcity value. These guys have a comically high $56 price target on the stock, which implies a nearly 160% upside. I mean, I'm not as bullish as they are, but I appreciate the sentiment. Here's the bottom line of a very exciting situation. We like to reassess the golf stocks after the Masters every year. We do it. I'm still a big fan of a Kushnet, which has given us some nice gains over the past year. But going forward, you know what? I'd much rather own Top Golf Callaway. Because if they I think they actually do own the future of the sport. The stock's gotten a lot cheaper in the last 12 months, and Wall Street's finally willing to give secular growth stories the benefit of the doubt. Again, you ought to try one of these places. They are very, very exciting. Mayor Money is back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast-fire lightning round, next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Sarah Massachusetts Sarah.
0: Hey, Jim. Thank you so much for your time and for taking my call. I'm a of student course. studying finance at Westfield State University. Quick shout out to Dr. Fiore. And I wanted of to course. ask your opinion on the moves Disney is making. Is it in their best interest right. to sell their stake in Hulu?
1: Well, I'll tell you, we want to get that balance sheet fixed, but can I just say, and I'm doing this series on undervaluation and how people say, am I too negative? This stock is now, it's just playing out ridiculous at 100. I'm just going to put it out. It's just ridiculous. It makes no sense to anyone I know, except for the sellers who constantly sell. If they walked away, which they should, I think that they realize that that they are missing the boat. But they won't. Maybe we have to wait till everyone I'm done. Disney's a buy. Let's go, my owns it. Let's go to Norma in New Jersey. Norma. Hey, Jim. I am Norma from White House, New Jersey. Love I that have area. Always used, Very nice.
0: Yes, love it. I have always used quality cosmetics for years. I'm 78. And recently, my granddaughter, Emma, from Lafayette College, Pennsylvania, introduced me to Elf.
1: Wow. Elf is that... such a winner. I, you know, I was talking to my fabulous stepdaughter oh, last oh, night at oh, dinner, oh, oh, and oh, oh. we were both saying, you know what, is there anything better than this darn Elf? They knock off everybody. They make them real cheap. Ty rag them in. is just terrific. I really like the stock even up here. I think it continues to be a strong, strong candidate for being a great consumer package good company. Let's go to uh, Bill in Florida. Bill. Hey, Dr. Kramer. I want to thank you very much for taking my call. My daughter, Karina, and I want to know about Oxy Petroleum. Can you give us some input on that? I think Oxy's fine. I mean, we're pioneer people. We have a youth position pioneer for the Travel Trust. It looked pretty good today. It is not done. I would continue to buy PXD. Let's go to Tom in Minnesota. Tom. Hi, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Hey, I got a question for you. First of all, I wanted you to know I've only been doing this for a couple of years, and you've really helped me out. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, partner. Appreciate that. Jim, with the price of gold going up, my SBSW has just been sitting there, and I'm not sure well, you know, what I, wow, should, do. Right. Should, I, buy? I should do. I I've got to do work on that. I've been talking to my staff about having gold company. You know I like gold. I always believe that you can put up 10% of your assets in gold. I've been, been a believer in gold from when I started. I must do work on this company, which I do not know. I don't know it. How about we go to Anthony in Minnesota? Anthony.
0: Hey, Jim. My question is about a mm-hmm. company that is not currently profitable, but all their competitors like Astra and
1: Virgin Orbit are failing while they keep succeeding launch after launch. What do you think about RKLB Rocket Lab? I can't recommend stocks that are losing money or may have money. It's just too dangerous. I can't do it to people, but thank you for the call. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, something's happened to semiconductors that's too big to ignore. Find out what you can do about it next. When something huge happens in the semiconductor industry, you can't ignore it, you can't minimize it. We keep hearing about the dramatic decline in personal computer sales, with the worst downturns hitting the major PC makers, which are real memory hogs. So if there's a decline in PC sales, the maker of memory chips tend to see a dramatic fall off in orders. Micron's been feeling the brunt of this decline. It's crushed their numbers again and again. Their margins have been shredded. However, it takes two to tango. You have demand, which is paltry. We know that now. And you also have supply, where there's been a ridiculous glut in both DRAMs and flash chips. That's the kind that Micron makes. There are only two ways to end an inventory glut of tremendous proportions like we have now. First, there's a need to have an uptick in PC orders. Uh, That could happen. Maybe in a few quarters, normal wear and tear, plus new models with new features cause people to upgrade. But that's not enough of reason to buy Micron right now, because even if you're counting on the resurgence in the demand down the line, they're still looking at two more terrible quarters before it happens. No professional money manager is willing to look through two more horrendous sets of, of numbers with grim commentary from CEO Sanjay Morotra. What about the other far more important way to end a glut, though? You get rid of supply. This is where the semiconductor industry caught a big break last week. Micron's chief competitor, Samsung, have been selling both DRAM and Flash chips well below their cost of production, ill-fated effort to take unprofitable ma- uh, market share. Samsung finally blinked last week, though, and they cut back their production dramatically. But the news that the inventory glut in memory chips can finally come to an end because Samsung is not over shooting its market and flooding the zone. Both Micron and Western Digital, which also make memory storage, saw their stock soar. Of course, here's a high-quality problem, even with Micron up 8% today. Do you know what? I don't think it's anywhere near what could happen. I think there's much more gain ahead for MU. Think of it like this. Samsung has been selling chips below its cost of production, in part because I think Sweetheart deals from the South Korean government. Now, though, they've got to try to run a business like every other private business. They've got to run profitable. When it comes to Flash, there are only really three large players, Samsung, Micron, and Hynix, the latter of which is a price follower, not a price leader. Get rid of the excess supply from Samsung for all these memory chips, and this industry can be profitable again. Plus, we know from personal computer execs that declines in demand are actually, at this point, unsustainable. There are cycles for the PCs just like there are cycles for phones, and we've lived out the cycle of cheap computers we bought in for our home office during COVID. If Samsung cuts back production, as it says it's doing, I think there's going to be a third quarter upside surprise in the industry. Not a fourth, but a third. And that makes it so you have to buy the stock of Micron, buy the stock of Western Digital right now, lest you miss out on what I think could be a miraculous move. I talked about this before. When the cycle turns positive, Micron's stock tends to go from one of the worst performers in the SP 500 to one of the best performers, two quarters. But you must buy now before the analysts turn positive. There's a larger issue here, too. Once again, Micron stocks predicting that something like this would happen, which is why it's been bouncing hard since the beginning of the year. When Micron rallied from 59 to 63 after that last bad quarter, I said the move was justified. Yet the stock then went right back into its funk, falling to 56 at mid last week. I was beginning to wonder, I lost my touch. But just like we planned to show you all week, many stocks have become too cheap relative to all sorts of benchmarks. This time, the benchmark is history. The irrational move down from last week is met by the rational move up from today. In this market, where you have to be hit over the head with value, investors just don't see it. They're leaving some potentially huge gains on the table by ignoring these issues and focusing on some sort of macro stuff that ain't going to make you dime. I say their loss, your gain. I like to say there's always a market somewhere. I promise I find just for you right here make money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now.